Salams guys, it's out here. Uh, we finally made it to the first episode. Thanks for joining. Just a quick note before we move to the episode. All of our interviews here on the Transit Lounge are done in person, face to face, but none are recorded inside studios. The nature of this show is that we're out and about wherever the guest is. Today's episode, for example, was recorded in the guest's hotel room. So if you hear some rustling noise or perhaps even some sirens in the background, they weren't added in for effect. They're real. Enjoy the interview. You know, uh, people say I'm street smart, okay? Uh, they say that both as a compliment and people that don't like me say I'm street smart, meaning, well, you know, I don't know, he's a semi-thug or something. Hello and welcome to the Transit Lounge, where we interview people who've had a considerable impact on the Muslim world. I'm Mohammed Zaud, and today on the show, Professor John Esposito, Professor of Islamic Studies at Georgetown University, member of the high-level group of the UN Alliance of Civilizations and author of 60 books, including The Future of Islam. So guys, these interviews are less about what the guests are currently doing and more about how they got there. That is, for today, what did it take for John Esposito to become the Professor John Esposito? Was it hard work? Was it luck? And I have my own thoughts about this and it's taken me some time to figure it out, but I'm going to leave that to the end. Allow me to run through some of the positions that the professor has held throughout his career, just by way of context, because they're incredible. Besides his position at Georgetown and at the UN, Professor Esposito is the founding director of the Prince Walid Center for Muslim Christian Understanding at Georgetown. He's the former president of the Middle East Studies Association and of the American Academy of Religion. He's also editor-in-chief of the Oxford Encyclopedia of the Islamic World. And he's the director of the Bridge Initiative, which is currently combating Islamophobia. In this interview, I was sitting in front of a man who's about to reach 80, but whose energy suggests he doesn't feel a day over 40. This interview was a bit of an emotional roller coaster. He brought himself to tears twice during the discussion and then threw in a couple of jokes befitting only someone who was raised in an Italian-American neighborhood in Brooklyn, New York. We start right there in Brooklyn, New York to understand how he was brought up. When I reflected back, I realized, you know, the fullness of what it was. It was an Italian neighborhood and as far as I can could walk as a child were Italian neighborhoods. So I always kid about the fact that I don't have to wait until I die to know what heaven's like. I mean, from a um, from a cultural point of view, uh, it, you know, you were embedded in your culture, and it was very working class, you know, which was true for all of the areas. Very family oriented. I had a lot of, and and also I was very involved in in my faith. I was um, uh, an altar boy. I won an award one time for serving the most masses in a compressed period of time. See how competitive I am. I mean, it was when I think back. Probably a lot of times, I there were times when I wasn't happy, but that had nothing to do with my parents. You know, my parents were terrific. They represented the kind of values that I think all parents, you know, would want. Neither of them had a high school education. My dad was very bright. Had to drop out of high school to take care of his mother, but they were very strong on values and also on education. And they are the reason why. All three of us went on to get a good education. Two of us got PhDs. My other brother went into a corporate position. So when your parents started seeing you giving speeches and clocking PhDs, uh, how did they feel? Like it was, what? yeah, you know, I, my mother and father one time saw me speaking. I think it was in Maine, in the state of Maine. 
And so somebody said, what does it feel like seeing him on stage? And my mother said, you know, what do you think of? She said, at least he has a job. At least he has a job. Because <laughs> I, as a child, I, from the age of maybe the third grade, I wanted to be a priest, Catholic priest. And so at the age of 14, I entered and became associated with the Franciscans, Capuchin Franciscans, and was there until I was 24 years old. You heard right. He spent 10 years becoming a priest. He was considering anything between becoming a missionary in Nicaragua, becoming a chaplain, or even a professor in the seminary. This was a tough gig, especially because he had to leave his parents and live on the grounds of the monastery. But my question was, why would someone at the age of 13 decide to leave his parents to become a priest? I believed that I had a special calling from God, I mean, for that special kind of vocation, and I just really wanted it very badly. I mean, that, that's who I was. It was like a young kid who decides to go to medical school, but at a very young age, you know, and then doesn't let go of it as they get older and you can't understand. That was the only identity I had. So deciding not to finish, I left two years before ordination, uh, you know, was a, was a big move. My identity, I only had a single identity. The really interesting question is, how did my parents respond when their son, who was like 13, said that when he was going to be 14, he wanted to go away. My mother and father were, were, were supportive. My dad uh, was quiet about it. He, I don't think he was thrilled because at a young age, he had come home, come up the stairs. It's like out of a, a B movie. And my grandmother's there, you know, <laughs> you fix your Italian grandmother crying. And he, she says, why are you crying? He says, because uh, you're going away to become a priest. And he said, I'm going to become a priest. He said, well, father so-and-so was just here and he thought you'd make a good priest. So I don't think my father was enthusiastic, although my dad was always quietly supportive. So he never said anything. My mother was a very outwardly devout person, okay. you know, but still I think it was a big thing about my leaving. As much as I think she was happy I'd be a priest, I, I know that it was a big thing for her, my being away. And she'd reflect on it years later. And I'm assuming dedicating 10 years of your life, you would have had to have made a lot of sacrifices compared to other kids in your community. I'm assuming they would have had a lot more of a liberal life, you know, gone off and uh, got a normal job, went and studied at university. Did you ever have regrets? No, not at all. Uh, and, and in fact, very ironically, I, I mean, I, I never totally checked this out, but when you're growing up in a, in a working class neighborhood and your whole family is working class, what people aspired to was to have a job like their big brother or their father. It was a very small group of us on that block that I remember. We're talking about going to college or university. I mean, the real thing was, you know, you're within this extended family. And if college is not anything that anybody's done, you don't, you know, you, you don't aspire to that. Sure. I never felt that I gave anything up or that people were getting ahead of me because I was into what I was doing, you know, and I really thought that it was super special. So after leaving the seminary, he did his master's in theology and then decided to do his PhD at Temple University, the only university where religious studies was actually a department. So at Temple University, he had to choose a major for his PhD and normal students would either major in Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, or even Chinese religions. But at Temple, something happened to John Esposito that changed his life forever. But what happened was the chairman of the department, when I told him I was going to do my dissertation in Hinduism, uh, said that I ought to take a course in Islam because we were hiring our first Muslim scholar, Ismail al-Faruqi, Palestinian, who had uh, published a book on Christian ethics. So he said, well, you know, you're a Christian theologian, you should do something. And I declined uh, at least twice. And then I could see he was really annoyed. And I thought, okay, I'll go along and I'll take the course. But I made it very clear to, to Faruqi 
that it was just one course. He never totally heard that. So he, he kept saying, <laughs> you know, you're going to have to do this course uh, and that course. And I'd say, why? He said, because to get a degree majoring, and I'd say, I'm not going to do it. And then he called me into his office about three months into the course. And he said, uh, sit down. The University of Pennsylvania has this intensive Arabic course during the summer and they give fellowships. So you should fill one out. I said, well, why would I fill it out? He said, because you're going to do Islamic studies. I said, I'm not doing Islamic studies. He said, fill it out. So I filled it out because I didn't want to get into a, an argument with him, thinking I'd never get it. And I got it. And then by then, Faruqi had made Islam come alive for me. And I, and I found myself getting pulled in simply because I suddenly discovered that there was another monotheistic tradition, and that in fact, it had roots and connections to Judaism and Christianity. So let's just reflect on that for a sec. His decision to study Islam is no simple one. Like he was fairly insecure as an early academic, especially regarding this decision. He even went and saw a shrink because in those days, no university taught Islam. So where would he actually teach? You know, the idea that I go into this field, most of my colleagues who are theologians said, you'll never get a job. And they were right when I finished. There were no significant jobs in Islam. I got a job to teach world religions. Then dedicated the rest of your life to the study of Islam. Yeah. What was the tipping point that, that made you decide this is it? I think it was certainly when I, when I decided to go do it, to Lebanon to do Arabic. I mean, you know, I had never been outside of the United States it's, at that point. You know, that became it. There was a commitment. I, and I, I cannot figure that out because I, I've always been a very practical person. You know, uh, people say I'm street smart. Okay. They say that both as a compliment and people that don't like me say I'm street smart, meaning, well, you know, I don't know. He's a semi-thug or something. Um, but, <laughs> well, uh, it worked for you, whatever the case worked. is. It worked, yeah. I mean, I, but only in the last two or three years, I kept thinking, I was so practical. Why did I decide to do this, you know? So you're saying you, you're very practical, but if there was no career, then why would you continue? Mm -hmm. I don't know, you know. I mean, it depends. Uh, you know, uh, uh, my wife, for example, would say that I was spirit-driven very Christian kind of comment, you know. Some people would say, I mean, if they were looking for religious explanations, sure. that it was, to me, it's too self-serving a comment that it was somehow God's will or whatever. I just, I just did it. I mean, I just, you know, and, and I, I really don't understand why I did it. You know, it was, was not the smartest thing in the world. I mean, even going over, I didn't have a full scholarship. I had a partial scholarship. The reason why we could do it is my wife was able to get a job there. So, I mean, it was a sacrifice for both of us. But what was it in Islam that drew you to I the Islamic studies? I was fascinated by Islam. I think the thing that, to understand me, one has to understand the specialness of the program I was in. My teachers were, or my teacher was basically a Muslim, okay? Now, for many people, when they were in programs, they, they had non-Muslim teachers, or they had maybe one Muslim teacher and a non-Muslim. You know, there weren't that many senior scholars, for example, who were Muslims teaching Islam. The other aspect was that my class was overwhelmingly Muslim because Faruqi every year would travel throughout the Muslim world, get scholarships for students and bring Muslim students. So when I was in a classroom, you know, it was for that period of time, it was like being overseas and living in, a, you know, interacting in a Muslim environment, sure. you know, the, the whole discourse, etc. cetera. Uh, and I think that that made Islam really came alive to me between Faruqi's lectures and the dynamics in the classroom. So how would someone who started off so insecure in his early career end up leading institutions like the $20 million Prince Edward Center? I ask him about this because for me, this summarizes his journey, positioning himself for when an opportunity arises. 
Just listen to these coincidences. And then what happened was I was in Washington promoting one of my books, doing uh, radio interviews. And um, I remember my wife said to me, you know, don't call up to see the answering machine and messages. Just enjoy yourself. So, of course, I called up to see if I had any messages. And uh, it was from the provost of Georgetown asking, saying, sometime when you come down, I'd like to talk with you. And I said, well, I'm actually right across the bridge, as sure. it turned out, from him. And so I went and he said, we, we have a donor who's interested in the possibility of creating a center. Uh, and what they wanted to know is, was there any need for a center? Uh, was this viable? Sometimes when your adrenaline hits you just right, your mind opens up and there's like an incredible creativity that comes. You're like alert and stuff's just coming. And I remember just going on for probably an hour, an hour and a half, really laying out something that I hadn't even thought about before. You know, <laughs> this is the kind of program you ought to do, et cetera. And I wasn't at all thinking that this had anything to do with me. Uh, and, you know, these are the down things, make it really rigorous, do this, this, this. And then at the end of it, he said, how does your wife feel about moving to Washington? And I said, well, I'll check with her. And so I moved. And there's, a, I mean, it's an apocryphal story, I think. People say it's true. The donor happened to be at a time when he was going to meet with the president. This is after it. To talk about a short list of people that, you know, each of them thought might be the director. And so-called, according to the donor's protege, they were in a bookstore and the protege, I think, pulled a book off the shelf and it was the Islamic threat myth of reality by me. And so when he went in, the president mentioned his first choice, which was me, and the donor had me as the first choice. So how that kind of thing happens is, you know, is remarkable. Um, Would you say that's like, or is that God's work? I can't speak for God, but I can say that I found it when I think about it, especially when I reflect now, I'd have to say that there's some meaning to my, my decisions. You know, I mean, it's just happened a lot. I, I don't want to be God into it because God might be upset at the kind of person that I turned out to be or something. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it was, it was how, how all of that could have happened was amazing. In fact, it turned out that when I first went there, somebody said I was going to meet the president and somebody said, you know, the president thinks really highly of you, you know, and I never met the president. I didn't think. And I thought, oh, why did people deliver silly little lines like that? He doesn't know me. I don't know him. <laughs> I walked in. It turned out it was a Jesuit that at Holy Cross, he was on our board of overseers and I had been on the same committee. We didn't know each other super well. So, you know, all of those things just sort of fell into, in, into place. So I'm sitting there listening to the professor speak, right? And I keep thinking to myself, what is his success equation? What is his success strategy? He keeps telling me that he wasn't particularly driven or not even competitive. He tells me that the equation is simple. It's hard work and it's luck. When I first taught at the College of the Holy Cross in Massachusetts, when I was going there, I got lost and I went into a petrol station. And so I said, how do I get to Holy Cross? And the guy said, study hard. Okay. Um, and I would say, you know, in terms of life, I don't even think I studied that hard until after I had my PhD, when I started to get book contracts, then I got serious about the whole thing. But in terms of being successful, I think it's, um, frankly, I think it's hard work and luck. There's no way that you just say, uh, study hard and work hard, and you're going to be at least outwardly in the worldly sense successful. It's, it's also luck. You become the right person at the right time. When I finished my degree in 74, as I said, there were no jobs. When I taught, I taught everything but Islam pretty much because people were interested in Hinduism and Buddhism. I taught sure. world religions and then we did Islam in there. I tried to get book contracts. Nobody would answer. 
I was never invited to speak. And then the Iranian Revolution came in 79 and I signed three book contracts in and five weeks. And all of weeks. a sudden everyone's interested in Islam. That's right. And you didn't have you didn't have a lot of specialists around. So it really meant that, you know, you were there. And even though I was a junior person, I wasn't really a junior person. You know, I was I was one of those small people like almost saying we were part of the only game in town. Yeah. I mean, I was 40 years old before I published my first book, you know, which is which is not all that, you know, sort of young. And, and then it just took off from there. So I had to probe him further because there were just too many coincidences. His decision to take Islamic studies, his scholarship in Lebanon, his being in Washington at the exact time the Al-Walid Center was doing a feasibility, his ability to write 60 books on Islam. Was it just hard work and was it just luck? You know, the question puzzled me throughout my interview and over the last week or so, and reflecting on the interview, going back in and listening to it, listening to him tear up at certain points during the discussion, as you'll hear later on, it finally dawned on me. Hard work? Absolutely. But what if we were to replace the word luck with the word sincerity? For me, listening to him speak, following him on social media these days, and seeing him dedicate his life to contextualizing Islam for policymakers, seeing him on the forefront of things like the Bridge Initiative, which is combating Islamophobia, that's not someone who publishes for the sake of publishing. And dare I say it, I don't think it's luck either. It's the works of someone who actually cares, who is sincere. I asked him again, what does it take? And this time when you listen to his answer, perhaps consider replacing the word luck with sincerity. At one level, if, I, if I'm reflecting on it, I mean, I have a healthy ego. So let's get that on record. Okay. <laughs> um, I, you know, I never was a competitive person. Well, you know, you become a lot of different things. Yes, I worked hard and I can feel good about it. And in fact, if somebody, if I were talking to somebody and, and it were the, the right occasion, you know, and they were saying, well, gee, you know, why didn't they get the, some of the recognition that I got? I'd say, well, one of the reasons may be that you, you didn't work as hard. You know, you might have been in my area, but you didn't work as hard at doing X or Y. But I just mean, because of the luck factor, I mean, I, I honestly say, you know, I'll say it publicly, I owe my career, my first Lexus to Ayatollah Khomeini and the Iranian revolution. <laughs> I mean, so th that's why you feel sort of not humbled by it, but you're just a realist, you know, it's sort of like, if that hadn't happened in the other sequence of sequence of events, I would have probably had a very happy career teaching at a place, but not having the opportunities to do the publishing. But again, all of that was because I was the right man at the right time in the right place. And I, I used to say about the center that it was the right idea at the right time and in the right place. That confluence I had no influence over. And what it did was though, it lit a fire under me. You know, somebody who was not driven to be a super avid reader all the time, you know, et cetera. You know, suddenly it was, my God, when I saw my first book, I never thought I could publish a book and saw my name, you know, on it. And, and every time I, I have a book, it's like, I think some people feel when they have a baby. I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> uh, I mean, even now I, I will get in touch with my editor and say, would you express mail it to me? You know, because I can't wait to, to see it. We kind of shifted gears at this point in the interview. Uh, I asked him about his family, his wife in particular. Like he told me he worked seven days a week at many points in his career. And my question was, like, how did his wife fit in all of this? Um, marry my wife. Um, I get, just realized, thank God you're not, uh, you don't have a camera. Um, she, my wife was always very, we, we, we really supported each other. We've been married now 53 years, so we go back, sure. okay? And we, in her career, when she wanted to do things, you know, she was initially... 
going to be an academic. So she would go for a master's degree. I would be teaching. Then I would do something and she would be, you know, working and doing X. And we did that all the way through. Um, I mean, we've, I was very fortunate that our wife was, you know, very supportive. She never questioned my decision. Uh, do you mind me asking about having kids and not having kids? Um, you, you said that you were oh, able yeah. to dedicate uh, your time because you didn't have children. Is that too sensitive a topic or? No, I, sex got in the way of, I didn't have enough time. I mean, it's just, I was too busy writing books. No, <laughs> there'd be a quotable for the show. I had never imaged myself as a father. In other words, from a very young age until I was 24, because I had embraced celibacy sure. and the kind of lifestyle. And, and I got caught up in my work and, and my wife, she then took off in terms of her development. She wanted to be a teacher. She got a, you know, a doctorate, et cetera. And then inside in her mid thirties, she really wanted to be in corporate, started at the bottom, worked her way up. So it was a very demanding life that we both had. We both liked it. Absolutely. And it, that's what we did. Hi guys, just a quick plug for Toledo Society. Transit Lounge is one podcast of many podcasts under the Toledo Society network. If you'd like to find out more, by all means, visit toledosociety.com. And back to the interview where we talk about the future of Islam, the role of Islam in this world, and I push the professor on a couple of tough questions. Um, you wrote a book uh, titled The Future of Islam, and you summarized some of the major challenges that uh, Muslims and Islam is facing. What would you say the role of Islam should be for young Muslims in the 21st century? I would say, you know, sort of like, you know, the first thing you want to say is who am I to say? Um, but we, we, I'm now an elder, so I can do that. You know, <laughs> I love China because they, that's, they call you elders and they, they hold the door for you and they kind of venerate you more as opposed to the realities of America where students let go of the door and it slams you in the face when you <laughs> try to get to your office. Um, that explains the bruises. That's obviously. right, exactly. Um, I basically think that from a religious point of view, is now we're now in a world where more and more people are pulling out of official religion. Now, some people are becoming atheists, some people are becoming just secularists, but others call themselves non. Sure. And what they mean is they'll see themselves as spiritual, but institutional religion has failed them from their point of view. I think that young Muslims need to realize that they are absolutely necessary for their community, for their family, for their children when they get married, etc. Being able to have a better life only if they remain concerned about their community and not do what I think is very understandable at some level, move out. Okay. So with young Muslims, I mean, basically my idea is that for young Muslims, it's, it's understand the reality and then figure out what you're going to do with it. What I mean by that is that there'll be young Muslims who will want to work in a lot of professions like all of us do. Okay. All right. You do that, but you also plug into the broader society, both your community and the broader society that you live in. Um, but keep in mind that potentially you always have to be thinking to yourself that the house can be inflamed again when there's another attack that takes place. Absolutely. You know, and that means that it, one has to take the reality is going to be a long haul. Professor, we're going to ask you a set of quick questions. Looking back at your career and your life, what are three do's and three don'ts? Do's realize maybe what in my time wasn't so obvious, but in today's world that you have no choice but to be involved. Another do is then express, respond to that reality 
while you're developing perhaps a career that doesn't relate to these issues, be involved in these issues in one way or another, in, sure. in the politics, et cetera. And the final do is do it in a way that embraces inclusiveness. The fact is they've got, one has to realize who the neighbor is. In the old days, when it was said in scripture, your neighbor, you know, was the neighboring tribe or sure. whatever, you know, the neighbor now is, is other ethnicities, other religions. And that, that's a demand that Muslims face. It's a demand that I, ironically, people who have become fat, dumb and happy in our society who are not Muslim, they have to remember that that's got to be a guiding light, love, love of God and love of neighbor. Sure. And three don'ts? Three don'ts. Don't have sex before marriage. No. <laughs> Let's not do that one. Um, I would say don't allow yourself to get so realistic that you give up any hope for significant change. I think that there is light at the end of the tunnel, but it's one hell of a long tunnel. And our, our, our thing is that unless we work at it, then the only light at the end of the tunnel, if you see it, is going to be an oncoming train. Be upset about something, but do something about it. Sure. That would be it. Fair enough. A couple of quick ones. Assuming you were praying and leading prayers at the Grand Mosque in Mecca and the imam falls sick and they ask you to lead and you had the chance to make one prayer to ask God for one thing, what would be that thing? Peace and compassion. In fact, you know, there's, there's an interesting song. It's an old song, which I never really thought about very much, but uh, it's uh, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. It can sound very trite. And whether one likes the melody of the song or not, I really think that there's, there's something there, you know, that Compassion is so built into human nature, into all the religions, but you don't know religion too. I mean, you don't have to be religious. And yet I think that for most of us in our everyday life, and unless you happen to run across it, you don't think about that, you know? And it sounds, sometimes people think it's too, too goody. I think the, the real problem is if, if you get too much caught up in the rat race, then anything that sounds positive, constructive is, is seen as I'm being unrealistic. And it's not really being unrealistic. I almost don't want to ask the rest of the questions, but I'd love to just get them over the line. Yeah, good. Sorry. If you weren't doing what you're doing now, what would you be doing? I don't know. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? It still would be the United States. And a book that you learned the most from? I can't answer that. Okay. It's really funny. I can't. Two last questions. A $100 product that has been of the most value. I spend much more money on things. <laughs> that is true, though, actually. Yeah. Um, an app that you would swear by? If we had an app for Bridge, I would swear by it. <laughs> I think there's an app for Oxford University Press. I would swear by that. Okay, Professor Esposito, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. One last thing, if you'd like to get involved in Toledo Society, by all means, reach out to us at info at toledosociety.com. So by the way, guys, I personally think that Transit Lounge as a name is a pretty cool one, but I'll leave you with what Professor Esposito thinks of the name. So, so what exactly happened? 
well. You know, when, when, I, when I kept looking and thinking to myself when I'd read the email, so this guy's gonna come and he's gonna go to the transit line. How does he get into the airport? And then when I got another you know, thing about knowing I was actually gonna be here and he wrote to me, I thought, why the f does he wanna do the transit lounge? Why wouldn't you do it at the hotel? <laughs> Notice I didn't quite use the say it as well, busted.